Eco Health Radio. We pay it forward. Welcome, Diedrich. Welcome back in the new year, 2020. Okay, so how was your old years and new years? 2020, you said. It's the 2022. La- to last time I checked was 2022. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good afternoon to all the listeners. And yeah, happy new year. And uh, I think we've said it before, South Africa is an interesting country. We're only on day five and we've already had to make a whole gaggle of life and death decisions. And we're only five days into the new year. So, uh, <laughs> oh, what did I miss? What did I miss? <laughs> nah, things things are starting to happen again. Thank goodness in the tourism tourism industry. Today marks the day that Qantas Airlines, for the first time in two years, is flying into South Africa. Oh, wow! So that is really good news for the Australia South Africa trade. Um. The USA and a whole gaggle of other countries have now eventually lifted their travel ban, so that is starting to kick off again. So it looks like we could be in for a good year. And people I'm chatting to, people I'm talking to in the tourism industry are all sort of starting to realize that the the virus basically is here to stay. We're going to have to just live with it and adapt yeah. to it. We can't shut down and live yeah, behind closed doors and shut it away for the rest of our lives because of this virus. We're going to have to adapt to this thing, and we're going to have to just start trying to get back to inverted commas normal, whatever the normal, normal was, <laughs> whatever normal. Yeah, is whatever the days. normal was. But you know, you cannot shut down like South Africa. I mean, the tourist industry is one of the biggest earners of foreign currency. You can't just shut that down for two years and not have consequences. It's insane. Yes. Yeah. So that is all opening up. And I mean, just on a positive note, I've had an adventurous week. When was it? I think it was New, New Year's was this last weekend. So last week, Friday, one of my clients confirms yeah. again. He got scared away by Omicron. Yeah. And he, and he sort of postponed and said, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. Over the weekend, he realizes, okay, the travel ban's over. No, so he's coming. So he, so he sends an international transfer. And I think the banks are sort of losing their minds a little bit at the moment because the transfer disappeared into cyberspace. Oh, and it, my <laughs> word. <laughs> and, of course, my, my business account has been suspended without my knowledge. The bank's not being great in communication. And oh. it landed in a suspended account, and then they just hooked the money and said, sorry, you can't have it because it's in a suspended account. And I've had four days of drama, but now eventually the money's oh, been released. So, word. yeah, well, the account did nothing for two years. I haven't seen a client for two years. Yours. I you know, that is a so it's not amazing that, that the account sort of goes into dormant mode. <laughs> so yeah. can't really blame the bank, but they also didn't talk to me about anyway. But it's been sorted. So for the first time in two years, my safari business has actually got clients arriving now in March. Awesome. So that's awesome. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. The other, my other clients are confirmed. Big group arriving towards the end of March into April. I've got a group of 82 passengers landing. Oh, wow. So That's a nice. It's nice. Group. There's obviously a little bit of worry that they, do I need a vaccine? Don't I need a vaccine? Or vaccination? Do I need a vaccination? Don't I need a vaccine? At this stage, all yeah. you need to have is a test saying that you that you um negative and you're allowed to, you're allowed to come into the country. Yeah. And uh, now we just got to make sure all the hotels are actually open and trading and, and all the rest. But I think but by March, I think everything's going to be back up and running again. Everyone's, everyone's in startup mode again at the moment. Yeah. So, but it's it's great. It's great news, and of course, there's huge excitement amongst the people that have got the bookings for. They're starting to see money and turnover and stuff again that it just hasn't happened for two years. Yes. And yeah, good stuff. 
So uh, let, let's hope it continues that no one, no one decides to in, invent some other scary virus again and scare the whole world into, <laughs> into lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not going to be very cool. No, not at all. But we missed, we missed last week. Had a little bit of a break last week, and now we're back again in the new year. And the week before last, we were chatting about what, what we tend to call the top spots. Top the spots, ones that just yeah. happen to get all the attention and stuff. And the one category that was missing is what we call struggle, the struggle sites. Struggle sites, yes. The struggle sites. Now, the struggle forms an obviously a massive part of South Africa's history. It forms a huge part of the South African psyche. And it is a massive political question. We're going to stay off the politics on these podcasts. <laughs> yeah. And we're just going <laughs> to sit and talk about what there actually is to see, where it comes from, what happened, and... Uh, and stuff like that. And it's exactly what we do on our mobile app as well. It's just the listing. It says, this is what there is. This is what happened. And that's why yeah. this gadget memorial, gravestone, statue, whatever it is, is here. Yes. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with the, the politics behind it. But I think one of the obvious places to start off with is um, Sharpville. Sharpville. Sharpville is a township or a an area down in Funabel Park for Hinnaking area. And that's where on the twenty first of March nineteen sixty was where the eventually got called the Sharpville Massacre. Oh okay. it was a march led by Robert Sabukwe. Interesting character in our politics and in our history. Member of the ANC, then he broke away, formed the Pan Africanist Congress. Very, very learned guy. He was a teacher. He was at universities. And he spent an awful lot of time on Robben Island in solitary confinement. And, in fact, he has one of the dubious yes. distinction of actually having a law named after him. And uh, the government of the day then actually enacted a thing called the Sabukwe Clause. And that was a sneaky thing in Parliament by the then National Party to actually just lengthen Robert Sabuki's internment to keep him away because he was yeah, such a good yeah. speaker and such a fiery orator that he could get these crowds going that they specially enacted legislation to make him keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> but, nice. Yeah, but Sharpville, Sharpville <laughs> is one of those iconic happenings in South African history. It was a protest against what we then had, what was called the pass books or the pass laws where people of color had to have a, or basically what would be an internal passport. Yeah. So they couldn't, no one, could, no one was allowed to move freely. They had to have this little passport and it had to be stamped by the local authorities that were allowed to live in an area, work in an area, etc., etc. Yeah. Which obviously caused a lot of resentment. Sounds very familiar. Uh, like what's happening now. Well, you know, yeah, at the moment, all around the world, I mean, you, you can go. Let's not get into that one. But, I mean, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. They, they, they're comparing <laughs> it to the old Nazi pass laws and all sorts of stuff. Okay, yeah. let's get off that one. <laughs> but, yeah, people of color had to have a passbook, and the passbook had to be stamped and had to have permission that he was allowed to live here and he allowed to work here and that kind of stuff, which obviously was – you can't do that to three-quarters of your population. Yeah. And it was a massive march. They walked up to the police station – Something happened, the police opened fire, and um, 69 people were shot dead by the police with just about 180 people injured in Sharpville. And that was really one of the first incidents that brought the whole apartheid system to the world attention. 
Yeah. It obviously broke all over the news. It's 1960. And that started the consciousness about apartheid and the policies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so it, it, it happened just outside the police station in Sharpfield. You can visit the police station. It's no longer a police station. It's now a little community arts and crafts center. But in and around Sharpfield, right next to it is a little memorial park. They've got little white crosses and stones for all the people that were killed in Sharpville. And it's quite a yeah. somber reminder of that struggle against apartheid and to get rid of these, some of these rather crazy yeah. laws that we had at the time. So it is perfectly visitable. It is easy enough to get in there. There's an exhibition center. There's arts and crafts center. There's the little memorial park. There's the old police station. So I call it a site, but it's actually four separate little sites, sites yeah. that... Um, that you can visit there. Okay, so Sharpville is the place where the whole world knew about the apartheid. I think it's where the world really got the first inkling of what it actually was. Yeah. The second one that I put on the list of the struggle sites is the Hector Peterson Memorial. Okay. Now, the Hector Peterson Memorial is commemorating the events of the 16th of June, 1976. Now, 1960, early days, TVs and stuff weren't really there and all the rest, but now you're talking 1976. Yeah. There was a growing movement against the South African government of the day, growing anti-apartheid movement, and the 16th of June was the protest by the school children in Soweto. Ah. Now... The protest was organized as a protest against the use of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction in the schools. Oh, okay. The apartheid government, the National Party, hugely nationalistic, really trying to promote Afrikaans. We've spoken once or twice about the, you know, that rise of nationalism with the Afrikaners. Yeah. They were in power. They could do it. They were making their own banks, you know, false cuss, et cetera, et cetera. All this kind yes. of stuff was the rise of Afrikaner nationalism. And in some deranged moment, the National Party government <laughs> decided to force the use of Afrikaans as the medium of instruction in what was then all the schools in the townships, all the black schools. Yeah. Now, Afrikaans to most of the black population at that stage was a foreign language. Yeah. It wasn't a normal medium of, cons of, of conversation. It would be English and, or home, and, and home language. Yeah. Suddenly the government tries to force Afrikaans into the school as a medium of instruction. Oh. Delegations went to government. They spoke to the ministers. They tried to get this thing and saying, hey, guys, you're now subjecting kids in school basically to a foreign language. Yeah. They are not going to understand what, what is being taught. It's already yeah. not a great educational system that we've got for the kids, and now you're forcing them to do it in Afrikaans. And never mind that half the teachers can't speak Afrikaans, so how, how the heck are they going to teach in Afrikaans? Oh, no. It was a something. moment of madness. It was a moment of madness. It was an absolute moment of madness by the National Party. And this was a peaceful protest. The kids got, the children got organized, several schools, they all organized, little street committees got together. And they then had this march from one of the schools there. Yeah. The police had lined up, and both sides claimed that the other guy started it. The police uh, claim that someone threw a petrol bomb. The kids claim that the police started shooting. Oh, okay, somewhere in between the two is obviously the truth. Yeah. And 
it wound up that several school children were shot by the police. Oh, no. And the most famous one, and the picture that went out to the world, we're now talking 1976, yeah. is of this brother carrying his baby brother. Yeah. Hector Peterson, 13 years old, shot by the police, being carried by his brother. And it was a famous photographer who became famous because of it, a guy by the name of, of Sam Zima, took that photograph. Yeah. And that photograph at that spot there now, that's a massive picture of that, of that um, the big, big blow-up of that, of that photograph is there. Yeah. That was the picture that went out to the world and really kicked off the entire worldwide anti-apartheid movement. That's what gave it massive momentum in the late yeah. 1970s and 80s, was that picture of that 13-year-old kid being shot by the police. Sure. So the Hector Peterson Memorial, to me, is one of those iconic spots that you've got to visit if you're looking to understand the psyche and a bit of the history and where we come from as a country and how we're battling with this um, sort of struggle, struggle ideology, old Africana ideology, white versus black, police versus residents, you know, yeah, all yeah. of that rolls in there. And, and the Hector Peterson Memorial, the museum there is focused on the events of the 16th of June. <clears throat> so it gives the whole build-up. You've got beautiful, you've got very nice. Um, tapes that play and they've got recordings of interviews with people they've got recordings with the students they've okay. got some of the international footage that went out to the world and hmm. that june the 16th is what then eventually basically transmogrified into the soweto riots yeah that then lasted for i don't know how long i mean i remember i was at school i was in i don't know what was it standard three or standard four or something at that stage it was it was scary stuff yeah police yeah. helicopters and the police caspers all over the place and you know my sister in the UK, I think at that stage, even phoned in and asked if we were okay. And, you know, that, and that's the image that went out yes. into, into the world. And the Hector Peterson Memorial of most of the struggle sites is one that I would recommend as a visit because it focuses very nicely on an event, an iconic event that actually happened right there. Yeah. And if you drive a little bit away from, from the Hector Peterson Monument and Memorial, just down the road on the way to the school where it all happened, and I mean, it's very close to where Nelson Mandela's house is, Archbishop Tutu's house is, you know, Vilakazi Street, yeah. the well-known spot in Soweto. Vilakazi Street, again, is one of the a cool little spots to sit down and have some lunch. And you drive past, you can actually see there's a very nice, well, nice in inverted commas, you know, <laughs> statue of, of police with their dogs. Yeah, it's a, it's like a wire sculpture, so you don't really notice it until you stop and really look, and then you can see the guy in his old SAP uniform with the Alsatian on a leash. Yeah, and that's yeah. where it actually happened. Okay, that's where the shooting actually happened, and the museum and the memorial, Hector Peters Memorial, is just a little way, little way offset from there. But of all those struggle sites, that's one of the ones that I prefer going to. Yeah, because there's a good focus on it. The other one that is not too far from there is the actual apartheid museum okay and that's just next to gold reef city just down there in boysons oh in just gold down reef the city. road of just gold down reef. the road there and they've also they, again they've done that very very cleverly and it's a big museum you can spend a good couple of hours there 
And they've done it very cleverly that you, when you buy your entrance ticket, you are allocated that you're either a black or a white. Okay. <laughs> Random ticket. Okay. And you then have to go through the appropriate entrance. Ah, Just like okay. we used to have in railway stations and in bottle yes. stores and in, you know, I mean, I remember those days. You you, you would have a, a shop or a bottle store. You'd have an entrance for whites. You'd have an entrance for blacks around the corner. Yeah. The railway station would have benches and seats and for whites only. I remember the benches with whites only on it. And then on the other yeah. side would be the blacks only. And there'd be separate ticket offices and separate entrances. So the Apartheid Museum goes back into that era where you then walk into your entrance. Hmm. And that they then give interesting. And then they then give a very, very good history of where it came from, how it developed, you know. And it's a it's a difficult one. You know, you're talking about nineteen late forties, fifties, sixties in South Africa. You're talking the development of Johannesburg as a mining town, you're talking about yeah. industries developing, you're talking about all of this kind of stuff. You're looking at this massive, massive demand for labor coming into what was the, it's still the Witwatersrand area. Now we're talking, this is yeah. already from 1886 when the first gold was discovered. There was this mass labor demand. Yes. And we've touched on this in Kruger. Some of the spots in Kruger were the yeah, old labor native, what is the native labor recruiting agency, bringing <laughs> yeah. guys in from Malawi and Mozambique and, <laughs> you know, bringing them in there, letting them sit in Kruger for three days to acclimatize. They buy them a blanket and they send them into the high felt yeah. in the high felt winter to come work on the mines for six months. You know, so you're looking at this industry and you're looking at, you know, Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Bight and the developers and the, the conglomerates and the massive money and the, you know, the, the stock exchanges developing. You've got Paul Kruger who's sitting there going, what, the, what sort of what's happening? I don't understand what's going on from a little backwater. He's becoming the richest nation on the planet. Yeah, And in the meantime, you've got this industry building, this influx of labor coming in. And that apartheid system was part of the system to try and handle and work with this labor coming in. You've yeah. got guys coming in from a couple of hundred miles away, cannot read and write, never seen anything like civilization, basically, coming into the city and yeah. being put into a workforce underground somewhere. Yeah. How to house them, what to do, you know, and all of these questions are coming up and the development of apartheid follows that labor influx, yeah. how to control the labor. And that museum does it very, very well. There's a lot of memorials, there's a lot of educational stuff on the mines, on the development of the labor, the labor laws, all of this kind of stuff. There's a very good hall about Nelson Mandela, Tracy Nelson Mandela's whole life, life journey. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a lot about the nineteen late seventies and early eighties with the violence, the bombings, the riots, the, the police, that kind of yeah. stuff. So it's a very, very interesting museum, but you do come out of it kind of quiet or a little bit shattered if you really sit and watch all of that kind of footage. I don't know if you remember that violence in the early eighties. I mean I remember it well. I you know I actually was in on the other side. I actually had to do some of the peacekeeping at some stage as well. I've had petrol yeah. bombs thrown at me in some of those riots, and it's, it's not lacquer. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a very, very, very sombering visit, but yeah. it's definitely a worthwhile one. And the one thing that I always do 
is I eventually get get out of the museum and I go and stand on top of the the wall and you get a a very good view of Johannesburg from there and it's quiet. Yeah. And though you just hear the wind and you've got a little high point, you can see the whole skyline of Johannesburg and you, it gives you a chance to sit, sort of sit and reflect on sort of what, what have I just seen and happened and what have I just experienced here. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's quite an intense visit to go to the, 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 the apartheid museum. Then we've got to move down to Cape Town. And obviously we've got the iconic Robben Island. The whole world knows about Robben yes, Island. Yeah. You just have to mention South Africa, Mandela, and everybody goes to Robben Island. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> again, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a sombering place. It's not, you can imagine it's not a, not a pleasant place to get put into because you can take it a, a boat trip from Cape Town Harbour. I've got a good couple of very funny stories about those boat trips. <laughs> but you take a boat trip to Robben Island. Even the boat trip is worth it because you get the most beautiful views of Cape Town and Table Mountain from the boat. Yeah. So views you cannot get anywhere else. So get onto the back of the boat, either by the motors, and take your pictures of Table Mountain. But you arrive at the harbour, and the harbour's got all these gates and sort of the, the entranceway, and you go into the prison, you visit the cell Mandela was in, and you see the facilities and the dining room and, the, and all the rest of it. You visit the stone quarry. They put you on an old ramshackle bus, bus or two that they've got there. They drive you around the island. And you visit Robert Sabuque's house. You actually see where Robert Sabuque was incarcerated in his okay. own little house, separate from all the other prisoners. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he, had his, he was nice. so isolated. He wasn't yeah. even in solitary in the prison. He was in solitary out of the prison in his own house on the other side of the island. That's, That's how much nice. the government yeah. feared this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a couple of World War II gun emplacements, and you can see a couple of the penguins and stuff. But Rob, Robin Island... It's an interesting visit, but it's a prison. You've got to understand it's a prison. It's yeah. a prison. It's not made to be a nice place. A lot of clients that I take, they go, oh, but it's so terrible. You go, well, yeah, yeah it's a prison. You know, um, <laughs> Alcatraz was not built to be a nice place. It was a prison. Yeah. It's a punishment spot. And still you, a lot of people go there to yeah, go. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a hotel. It's, not, it's a prison for the nasty guys and the big guys and the guys the government of the day didn't like. Yeah, we can go into the reasons for the incarcerations in a, polit- in a political debate, yeah. but it's a prison made as a punishment thing. Yeah. So, Robben Island is one of those spots that you that you should actually go and go and visit as well. I've I've done Robben Island three or four times. I don't have to ever go back to Robben Island. Um, most of the clients come back and go, oh, okay, interesting, not quite what they expected. Yeah. Um, it's not exactly a penal colony. It was just, it was just a, a harsh prison. Yeah. It's not quite at the level of the French punishment islands out in French Guiana, that kind of stuff. Not quite there. Yeah. But, but I mean, a couple of stories. I mean, it's, uh, Robben Island is a gold mine. Everything that is a tourist in South Africa comes to Cape Town is going to do Robben Island. Done. End of story. Yeah. You've got a captive market. Everyone's going to do Robben Island. So when Robben Island kicks off as a tourist destination, you're talking 95, 96, somewhere around there, 90, you know, just after, after the elections, yeah. tourism starts booming. Robben Island Museum contracts, charters, leases two very beautiful boats, massive okay. catamarans. And it has to be a catamaran with a very low draft because the harbor in Robben Island is a very shallow harbor. 
Okay. So you cannot put a boat with a deep keel into the harbour. Ah, okay, so okay. catamaran is ideal design. Two beautiful catamarans. I remember the one was called the Outchumato, and I think the other one was the Makana. The Makana and the Outchumato. Makana and Outchumato, two, two characters out of the 17 and 1800s, the um, Kosa Wars on the Eastern Frontier, two of the leaders that were fighting against the expansion of the Cape. Okay. And beautiful. I mean, I think I took like 100 people at a time. So you go under the deck and there's, you know, nice aircraft seating and there's a TV playing and you've got a 20-minute run into Robben Island. Anyway, we arrive on one of the tours one day and these two boats are gone. Okay. Gone. Back. <laughs> okay. And he has an old stinky fishing trawler and one of the ferry boats that used to do the Seal Island tours from Hout Bay is now standing there. And I go, well, what are you guys doing here? Because you should be on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. The, 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 the two catamarans are gone. And they've now chartered us now to, to do, to do the, the ride. Oh, my word. But now the ride takes twice as long. Yeah. So the ferry boat from the Hout Bay is a great, great boat, but it's just a little bit slower than the big fancy catamarans. Yeah. And that stinking fishing trawler was, 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 was just unspeakable. <laughs> it was an ancient tugboat or fishing boat or something. It stank to high heaven. It couldn't hold the people. It rocked and made people seasick. It was terrible. Oh, my word. But eventually the story comes out is that Robin Island forgot to renew the lease of the catamarans. And eventually, I think it was an Australian company, turned around and said, well, guys, look, you know, you're not signing the lease. You haven't paid us for a couple of months, so we're taking our boats. And mm. nobody paid attention to this until they woke up one morning and there were yeah. no boats in harbour. <laughs> so <laughs> Robin Island Museum then had to suddenly get these other boats. That lasted for a while. They then had two other catamarans built. Again, multi-million rand machines, beautiful machines. Yeah. Except they couldn't fit into the harbour. Oh, no. <laughs> they <laughs> no. built them with the draft that was too deep. They couldn't get into the harbour. So one of those, the last time I was in the Cape Town waterfront, one of them was around the back of the waterfront rotting away. Oh, so no. I don't know if they've sold them now or revamped them or done something to them. But yeah, so the the story of the Robin Island ferries is a bit of a, <laughs> a yeah. No, and it's it's unbelievable. I mean and and it's not rocket science to run that. I mean it's a captive market. All yeah. you gotta do is, is have a decent boat to get the people to and from the island, you know. Yeah. That's all you gotta do. But again, Robin Island I think is on everyone's itinerary yeah. to to visit when, when in South Africa. And then the other spot in Cape Town, and one that actually made quite an impression on me, was the District 6 Museum. Okay. And District 6, again, highlights one of those things in apartheid or during the apartheid era where government would expropriate land or areas and change who was allowed to live there. Oh, during okay. apartheid, you were classified as black, white, Indian, colored, and Asian. Yeah. I think those were the five. Okay. There might be one more. I don't know. I speak under. But depending on what you were classified as was where you are to live, where you were allowed to work, where you were in a school. Basically, yeah. that category designated your daily life. And living areas were then also designated as a black or a white or a colored or an Indian or an Asian living area. Okay. And every once in a while, government would then turn around and go, oh, hang on. This town is growing, or this place is now nice, or we need a new shopping center, or we're doing some development, but he has now an area that belongs to black, whites, Indians, colors, whatever it is, 
and we need to move them out and make it a white area. Oh, wow. And District 6 was one of those spots in Cape Town, and that one hit very, very deep because it was an entire community. Colored, colored, what we call colored, the Cape, the Cape color, the colored community lived yes. there. Yes, yes, yeah. And even to this day, there was such protest about the move and the expropriation of District 6 that no one has yet built on that land. Oh. As you come in the highway, you come in on, on, the, on the main highway, you come past um, uh, Table Mountain, you're coming down the main highway, and just as you hit the big curve, as you see in the city center, there's a whole piece of open land on yeah. the left-hand side, and that was District 6. Okay. So that entire community got flattened, the houses got taken down, and then nothing happened. It came to a standstill, and it's still at a standstill today that that community was upped and moved and plonked somewhere else. Oh, my word. And that District 6 Museum in town shows what was lost in that event. Yeah. Now, that, that event happened hundreds of times, mirror images all over South Africa. Yes. You know, I mean, in Johannesburg, we've got several of those sites. You've just got to look at Freida Dorp. You've got to look at, you know, that area down the side of Johannesburg and stuff. Pretoria had happened where government would just suddenly say, you guys, pack up, move your stuff. Here's the trucks. We're taking you, putting you somewhere else in a, in a township, and this yeah. area now is going to be developed to something else. And that District 6 Museum, you actually walk out of there realizing the vibrancy and the communities and that feeling that yeah. just got destroyed by those arbitrary decisions yeah. made, made by government at that stage. <clears throat> so that, that, those, those would be my, my top, top sites for the, if you yeah. want to get a, a history of what, what we now tend to term, term the struggle. There are hundreds of other ones. There's museums and memorials and little cairns where, where six guys got shot and another three guys got arrested. You can visit yeah. the Nelson Mandela arrest site just outside Howick. They're building another museum there. In, in Port Elizabeth, there's, there's been a, a museum. I, I, I don't even know if it's open now in a place called Red Location. That, again, some of the, it, it, was, it was little shacks and shanties that dated back to the Boer War, to the old Boer War internment camp and transit camp for soldiers in the Boer War. Okay. So you're talking 1899, 1900. Yeah. Those yeah. are wooden houses that were still in use a couple of years ago. They're gone, they're shot, they're finished. It's called Red Location because they were painted with red ochre, you know, that, that red anti rust paint on the corrugated yeah. iron. Yes. These people, I don't, there's, there's probably one of the poorest communities in the country, lives in red location. But yet they put down a multi-billion rand museum to Nelson Mandela in the middle of this location. Oh, wow. And okay. I don't know. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't marry those two. Yeah. That you spend billions on a concrete monstrosity of a museum. Yeah. And you've got these people living literally in sewerage and in mud, in houses that are falling apart from 100 years old. Yeah. So there's, there's hundreds of these struggle sp spots around South Africa that, that you can find. But those would be the ones that I would say would probably make the, the most impact on, on a visitor. Those, those, those would be my five. Yeah. So Sharpville, Apartheid Museum, Hector Peterson, Robben Island, District 6. Those would be my, my calls for those ones. I think we should go for a quick break. 
And uh, yeah, then we'll we'll be back. Roll to the bank, cash that Friday paycheck money. We circle up those step sides and fog like them woods. We ain't got it all, but we got okay. it down. And we are back after this break. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we are continuing with the top spots. Yeah, that was kind of slightly more serious note, I think, on on the struggle sites. But my next my next list is sort of I don't know it's not even a top ten I think it's a top eleven or top twelve of what I call my slightly off the wall spots <laughs> off the <laughs> wall spots a little bit of the fun a couple of the little fun spots yeah that you you have to stand back and go okay how does this fit into this whole thing yeah unfortunately I have to start on one of the the ones that oh, that's always that always always hits me when I visit it, and I try and stop there every time I'm on the highway down to Cape Town, in Springfontein, which is the children's cemetery in Springfontein. Oh yes, I think we've touched on this one once once or twice before. Springfontein used to be a massive railway junction for the steam locomotives to refuel and to tank water. Yeah, obviously with the advent of diesel electric. That whole thing has fallen apart, and the village, the town of Springfontein, is now a derelict, a derelict mess. But at the time of the Anglo-Boer War, it was a major junction of the railways, okay, and a major British army camp, and it was a concentration camp. Oh. And there's two sites in Springfontein. One is the main Anglo-Boer War cemetery, and the other one is the children's cemetery. And the children's cemetery always hits me so hard because that's where all the unbaptized children were buried. Oh yes, they weren't allowed to be buried in the main thing because the religious and the duomini and what 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 they weren't baptized and all the rest of it. And there's a tiny little cemetery on the side of town, which is the children's cemetery in Springfontein. Yeah, and to me, that's always such a reminder of those concentration camps and what happened during that Anglo-Boer War. Those concentration camps and the kids and women dying in those concentration camps. Yeah. And you stand in that little cemetery, and there's tiny little boxes. They're the size of your laptop. Gee whiz. Okay. And that's the babies buried in Springfontein. Yeah. And I, and I always use that. That's always a good reminder that we must not forget that part of our history either. Yeah. Of, those, of the, the suffering of the Afrikaners in, in, in those concentration camps at the time of the Anglo-Boer War. And that's just one that always hits me. The other one, the next one. The next one, Little Heroes Acre in Skakuza. Oh, yes. One of my favorite spots, the dog cemetery in the Kruger National Park, in Skakuza camp, of all the rangers' dogs. Well, not all the rangers' dogs, some of the rangers' dogs. Man's best friend has got their own special little cemetery in Skakuza. Yeah. And it's just uplifting to go. It's, it sounds strange, but it's so uplifting to go to a cemetery and yeah. see the love that people had for their dogs and the role that the dogs played in those rangers' lives. You know, Harry Voliter's dog is buried there. Yes, Harry Voliter, yes. the guy with the lion in Kruger. At, and that's just one of those little spots where you actually come out, you go, hey, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's just a cool spot. That's a cool spot. <laughs> the other cool spot, the Owl House. The Owl House in New Bethesda. Yes. The Karoo is one of my favorite spots in South Africa. And the Karoo is enormous. Okay. So very difficult to choose a spot. But New Bethesda. And again, I've got a fantastic memory of that. Big coach to a luxury coach, 45-seater coach, double axle, massive 60-ton coach. Oh. And suddenly we got new Bethesda on the itinerary. Driver looks at me. I look at driver. 
And driver says to me, do you know this road? I said, I haven't got a cooking clue. Never been here before. Brand new. I've all heard about it. It's the Owl House. It's Helen Martins. It's got to be a cool spot. Let's go. Yeah. While we go down this little dirt road with this coach. <laughs> and this driver was swearing at me for that whole 40 kilometers. <laughs> but we got into New Bethesda. And it is this fantastic, typical chocolate box Karoo village. Dirt roads, yeah. little corrugated iron houses, buildings, little stoopies and verandas in front. Oh, yeah. While we're sitting there at the little cafe having a toasted cheese or something, the cows and goats are walking on this main street. <laughs> but the Owl House oh, wow. is something that is just surreal. Helen Martin's artist, she spent her life making statues of owls. Yeah. That was her calling. That's why it's called the Owl House. And there's owls everywhere. When I say owls, I mean owls everywhere. everywhere. The garden is covered in owls. The house is covered in owls. There's statues, and she made them out of concrete and cement. And All kinds my of lasting things. impression is owls with like big plastic, like like you know, like a fake jewel. Those little, if yeah. you get a plastic jewel with all little facets cut in it. There's yes. owls with these eyes everywhere staring at you in this garden, and there's camels and there's all these weird things in this garden. And Helen spent her, her years building up, up this collection in her house. Yeah, She was obviously a bit of a disturbed woman. She eventually committed suicide by, I think, drinking drain cleaner. So yeah. some, something, something didn't work out there. Obviously, there was a massive depression working yeah. out through, through the thing there. But the Owl House is one of those walk-around-the-corner things, and you go, what in heaven's name is this? am I seeing here? <laughs> it's worth the detour. It's worth spending a night in, in, in one of the little Karoo towns, New Bethesda, the stars and just that silence at night yeah. is just beyond, it's beyond rustic and beyond beautiful. Yeah. Then I've got another one of my favorite ones, the Carlfoot Throw Monument, just outside Harrysmith. The road from Harrysmith that goes down over the, over the berg is the route that the foot trekkers used with their wagons yes. to get down into KZN. Peter Tief goes down there. Deborah Retief painted Pete Retief's name on one, of the, on one of the rocks there. You can still go and see that. And that, that eventually wound up with, with Dingan killing Retief and then the Battle of Blood River. So, you know, so it fits yeah. into that. But there's a Carlfoot Throw Monument there. And it's a beautiful statue of this barefoot woman in Fort Trekker dress. Yeah. And the memory of that one is eventually after the fiasco of the Fort Trekkers and the colony of Tull gets started and the whole thing. Eventually, the British take over over the colony of Natal again, yeah. and a lot of the trekkers moved back out of out of Natal, back up onto the high felt. And one of the famous sayings was that I will not live under British rule. I'd rather walk barefoot over the mountains. Yeah, and that's where that statue comes from. Okay. That utter determination for that independence and self determination of those Afrikaners and the hatred yeah. of British rule. Yes, and that just comes out in that statue. You can do, you look at that face. You can just see that determination and that up yours attitude of that woman. <laughs> going, I don't care what it costs me, but I'm not uh, going to stay here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's an absolutely beautiful statue. We've yeah. got just nuisance in Cape Town. My favorite doggy statue. I oh, love dogs. Yes, dogs. Are, I've had dogs my entire life. Just nuisance. One of the only animals ever to be hold rank in the British Navy. Yeah, <laughs> he's got yeah, his yes. own little statue there in um, Simonstown, 
And he's got a very, very shiny nose because legend has it that if you, if you rub his nose, he gets, it's good luck. And just Newson stands there on the the, in the main parking, just at the harbour, and uh, you've got you've got to see him. Then we run a little bit of a animal thing. Did you know that we got a donkey monument in Uppington? A donkey monument. I don't think I've ever mentioned the donkey. In fact, I might have had it in the animal in that one animal program we had. But we got a donkey monument in Uppington. (laughs) And <laughs> it's down the main street, almost as you're heading out of town to back to the down towards the Hrabis. And it's in the museum there, and there's a statue of this donkey on this grindstone. Oh, yes, the grindstone. On the grindstone. And I don't know who did it, where it comes from, but it's a tribute to all those hardworking donkeys that you see pulling carts, doing grindstones, yeah. You know, carrying carrying backpacks all over South Africa. Donkey cart on the back roads of South Africa. You're going to see yes. at some stage. Yeah. The nickname, the Kalahari Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's a statue to all those hardworking donkeys yeah. in Uppington. It's just one of those weird ones again. You go, okay, who in, who thinks of making a donkey statue? Yeah. Then you got the giant pineapple in Bathurst. Giant pineapple. The giant pineapple. <laughs> In, in Bathurst. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bathurst is obviously the center of our pineapple industry. Ah, okay. I just so, wanted to um, ask, what did the pineapple do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that part of the Eastern Cape is yeah. pineapple country. Okay. So, along, along, along one of the roads there is this giant fake pineapple erected on... On one of the one of the farms, and it's the world's biggest pineapple. Ah, so, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's just a fiberglass. It's just a great big fiberglass um, pineapple. It's a sixteen and a half meter high pineapple. It's got a couple of floors in it. You can go into it, stand on the top, and you just get beautiful views. Oh my word! Okay, around the huge. area, and it's. <laughs> <laughs> that is it's, huge. It's again, it's just one of those things you don't kind of expect. Yeah. Then, then another one is the Karl Lundmann Monument. Now, Karl Lundmann, again, like most of the Fort Trekkers, came out of that Eastern Cape area. And he... He was one of the he's sort of one of the kind of lesser known foot trekkers. But he was the second in command of the Battle of Blood River. So oh, he, yes. he was Andres Pretorius's right hand man at the Battle of Blood River. Oh. And he came out of that Eastern Cape area and he left because during the Sixth Frontier War he lost everything. Farm burnt, the whole lot, gone vach. Yeah. And he eventually said, look, we're getting no support from the government. We need to get out of here. And that's why he joined um, the Great Trek. Yeah. But it's one of Gerard Moerdijk's constructions. Now, Gerard Moerdijk is the guy who did the Fortrecker Monument. He's one of the architects ah. and designers in South Africa. When you've got a Gerard Moerdijk creation, you are looking at something special. Yeah. And the Karl Dantman monument always hits a little a little a little thing with me because it shows the 
For me, it's the Afrikaner worldview or the Fortrecker worldview. Because the monument is a globe. It's the world globe on a plinth. Oh, yeah. And across South Africa is a little string of ox wagons. Oh, okay. <laughs> Spanning east to west right across South Africa yeah. is this little thing of ox wagons. Okay. And to me, that sort of personifies how the Afrikaner view the fur trekkers as occupying, taking, civilizing, and going forth into South Africa. Yeah. It's on, it's on, the, it's on, the, it's on the road trip app. There's a beautiful photograph of it on the app, and you should actually have a look at that. And it's almost like yeah. the, 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 whole, the whole of South Africa is just covered with ox wagons. Okay, that must be awesome. And it's on, it's on it, 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 I think it's actually on Carl Lundman's old farm. Um, but again, you know, it, it, it shows you one of the, the biggest causes or one of the biggest, yeah, background stories to the Great Trek is Lundman lost everything. 1834 to 1836, the Sixth Frontier War. There was a hundred years of warfare in that area, the, what we call now the Eastern Cape. A hundred yes. years of war. Just, and it's yeah. be- between the, the settlers, the Khazars, they were clashing over land, yeah. cattle raids, farm burnings, you know. And eventually the guys just had enough of this. The British had taken over 1806. You're now talking 20 years later. Yeah. 20, 25 years later, the British didn't care about that area. They didn't secure it. They didn't help. And somehow yeah. it was always the farmer's fault. The Khazars would come over the border claiming that this was their land to kick off the farmers. The farmers are going, but we are here. We need protection. The British didn't do anything. You know, yeah. So obviously it builds up this massive resentment. And that, those were the causes of that great trek. Yes. And Karl Nunman sort of personifies that one to me as well. Then we've got one of South Africa's great stories. And that is the prophetess. Prophetess. The prophetess, non non classe. Non classe. I can't get that click. <laughs> and the story with that is she was a young girl. And Again, Eastern Cape area, you're talking about this Hundred Years' War. Yeah. And she lived from 1841 to 1898. And her parents were died, died or killed during one of these frontier wars. She was raised by her uncle. And her uncle happened to be a counselor for the Koza King, King Sarili. Okay. And 1856, she comes along one night and she says, I've had this dream and this vision. And people took her seriously because obviously that spiritual world with the Sangoma yeah. and the dreams and stuff is, is part of the culture yeah. and a huge part of, of, of that. And she came along and she says, listen, I've had this vision that if the Tlazas destroy their crops and kill all their cattle... A huge wind is going to come and blow all the white people into the sea and they will all be drowned by massive waves. Oh, yeah. 
So this mm. now gets fed up. You know, her uncle is advisor to the king. Yeah. So this story gets up there. They get some some gormas to come, and they all agree to this. They all say no, but this is this is genuine. This is going to happen. Okay. And it shows that 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 hunger of the Khazars to be rid of the whites in that area. Yeah. That this is almost like a last resort. This is a vision. This is going to save them and release them from all these wars and this drama and this land, land issues and, 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 and. Yes. And they obeyed the vision. Hmm. They obeyed the vision. They, they went and they burnt their crops and they slaughtered their cattle. And they're all standing Jeez. there on the day of, this, of, of what is now supposed to happen on this vision. And, of course, nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there's no great wind, and the whites do not get blown into the sea and get drowned. And there they stand now, and they estimate the famine that ensued from that great, it's called the great cattle killing. Oh, yeah. Anything up to 270,000 people starved to death Gee, was because of that vision. And her gravesite is marked on our app, and you can still go visit her gravesite. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's one they, of those. That's okay. That's one of those weird South yeah, African stories. It's a one. great story. It's a massive happening. Two hundred and seventy thousand people died because of her vision. Sure. <laughs> that is scary. That is scary. That is a scary, but that again is the power of prophecy. It's the power of the Sangomas. It's the yeah. power of yeah, of of that that part of the culture. Yeah, that religion. Let's call it. Let's let's put it in inverted commas and call it that that religious fervor belief thing. Yes. <laughs> then one of my other little favorite spots is when you head out towards Uppington. You're now coming past the Orange River, the Kharib River. At the moment, the Okhrabi's Falls are absolutely spectacular. I think it's the highest it's been in the last 30 or 40 years or something. The Okhrabi's the is absolutely spectacular right now. Yeah, I hear the Wild Dam is also The, the Wild Dam's at 110%. Yeah. <laughs> There's uh, water everywhere. Yes. But if you take a couple of the little back roads after Uppington, or even as you're coming into Uppington and you go around and you, and you head down towards Kakamas, you can see the old water wheels. Oh, yeah. The old Egyptian technology of water wheels is alive and well and being used in South Africa. Yes. Where the farmers have got furrows with water streaming and they've got water wheels and the water wheels are gently turning in their buckets and the bucket tips and then the water runs down little pipes and stuff into the fields. Yeah. And it's just such a... I don't know, it's, it's lazy, but it's intense. The water wheel is such a slow, gentle movement, yeah. creaking away and pouring water, but it does it all day, 24 hours a day, yeah. all day long. Every single minute, there's water getting fed down those little furrows into the fields. And, I mean, there's grapes and there's all sorts of fruit down there along, along the orange. And yeah. a couple of those back roads, you can still see some of those little water wheels. Did you know uh, uh, the Valdam? We were talking about the Valdam, that there's grave sites... In the dam. Yeah. And when no, the water right. is low enough, you can Yeah, sometimes you can still go see some of the old graves in the farms and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But those mm-hmm. water wheels remind me of a great story in Victoria Falls. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the groups I get every year does a like, 14-day 
trip and they start Cape Town and Durban and we do Lesotho and Swaziland and Kruger Park and then we, go, then we all fly to the Victoria Falls for a couple of days. <laughs> and it always happens in, in sort of March, April. That's the group I'm getting now because that's when the Vic Falls are in flood. Oh, yes. Now, when the Victoria Falls are in flood, you've got, I don't know, 180 or 200 million liters of water per second flowing over the Victoria Falls. I mean, it is beyond spectacular to stand yeah. there. And, I mean, the ground trembles as this water is going down that gorge. Yeah. But, anyway, the itinerary is we land, land at Livingston. We do the, the Zambian side. A lot less drama than going into Zimbabwe. So, we go to Zambia. Yeah. And the truck comes and picks up all the luggage, and we get picked up in a truck, and we go visit one of the local villages. And this is now a place called Chief Makuni's Village. Okay. So for your international visitors, this is a big eye-opener because it shows you exactly how people live there. So you drive down this little dusty road, and on this particular one, we actually see the chief. The chief comes back in his Mercedes, big coat of arms on the door, <laughs> stops, greets the drivers. Drivers, ah, hello, 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 and you go into the village. The pub is open. The veranda is full of guys drinking beer. <laughs> go past the pub and into the village. Yeah. Now, the village is a dusty little mud hut village. Okay. That's it. A couple of chickens are, are scrabbling around, one or two goats, a couple of scraggly millies, maize is growing around. The ladies are sitting there breaking open the nuts to get the oil. You know, there's like that. There's, 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 I think it's called a Makola nut yeah. that you break open to get the oil. And the local guide comes along and takes takes the group through the village and I, I, on this tour particular tour I had this this guy from Texas now he was the epitome of a of a Texan oh, cowboy yeah. boots everyday cowboy boots <laughs> denims his belt was leather with little silver studs and little turquoise little turquoise oh, stones yeah. he had the little string necklace oh, with yeah. a little turquoise gadget he had his stetson on every day <laughs> he and fantastic guy brilliant businessman he had shopping centers and he had a ranch and he had all sorts of stuff running in Texas yeah. And we, we got on. We just got on very well. Now, we walk through this village. And this guy's looking at this and he's going, there's nothing here. And I go, yeah. No, I agree. There's nothing there. It's a yeah. couple of huts, lots of children, ladies doing the nut thing. The, the men are in the pub. And eventually he turns around. End of, end of tour, you wind up and you go into the little curio market now. And that was one of the main sources of income. You can buy a hundred different, different types of carvings and things in there. Yeah. It's question time. And he says to me, Did you, why is there nothing happening? I said, no, no, don't ask me. Ask your local guide. She's, she's in charge of this. She, she's got the... He yeah. stands up and he says, Madam, I'm a rancher in Texas and I know soil. And he picks up this handful of soil and he says, this, I can, I can grow anything on the soil. I can grow anything on this. This is a beautiful soil. Yeah. I can, I can farm this and produce food like you cannot believe. And he says, I'm seeing nothing. Yeah. I've got a couple of millies over there, a little bit of maize, and you've got a goat and a chicken. And what are you doing? Why are you not doing anything? Yeah. Her answer was, we have no water. Oh, okay. He turns to me and he looks and he says, did you, did I hear that right? I said, yeah, you heard that. He turns around and the Zambezi, you can see the water from the Zambezi River. Yeah. 180 million liters of water per second are flowing past this village about a kilometer away. Yeah. But yet they've got no water. Oh. And I said to him, well, there's exactly our problem. That those water wheels from Uppington. Yeah, would have worked perfectly. <laughs> would work so well in the Zambezi, but somehow that just hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is so sad. And he just shook his head and he says, wow, I, I, I don't get it. He says, that, that's why there's nothing happening here. Oh, my word. Yeah. So <laughs> we, need to, we need to take the, the Uppington water wheels and put them on the Zambezi and they will have water to grow absolutely anything that they want to do up there. Yeah. No, for sure. I think we're already out of time. Actually, over time. We are. We're over time. Goodness. <laughs> I only saw that now. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. Well, then we will end this show with a nice uh, country rock number. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with a road trip show with Diedrich. Uh Please go take a look at the road trip app. Uh, you'll find it on the App Store and on Google Play. And yeah, go check it out. Uh, it's one forty nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. one forty nine. The app is yours. And no, we actually reduced the price. We actually t- slashed it in half. We're now talking about 69 bucks or something or 65 rand for the app. We, we slashed the price just in, in December. Oh, okay. So it's a lot more affordable now. Okay, and it's, it's, cool. it's definitely worth the gamble of 60 bucks to get the information that's on that app. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. Okay, well, let's go play out with this number and we'll see you back next week on the Road Trip Show.